0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. Happy New Year, and in this first episode of 2022, we preview the big art world events of the year and look at what's ahead in the art market. Buck and Chibundu Onuso preview the year's biennials and exhibitions, and Georgina Adam has a stab at predicting what fortunes await the art market in 2022. Before all that, you can save 40% on a digital subscription to The Art Newspaper, that gives you unlimited access to the website and our app for iOS and Android, and up to 50% on the complete subscription, which means you get the newspaper as well as access to the website and app. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and select your subscription and enter the promo code digital sale for digital or print sale for complete. And do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, even though many museums are beginning the year with closed doors due to the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, 2022 should, COVID-19 permitting, be a great year for exhibitions and events. So to look ahead at the big shows over the next 12 months, I'm joined by the novelist and regular columnist for the art newspaper, Chibundu Onuzo, and our contemporary art correspondent, Louisa Buck. Louisa and Chibundu, I thought we'd begin by talking about the big art world events, these biennial or annual events, the events which recur every now and again, and two happen this year that are of particular importance. Let's begin by talking about the Venice Biennale. Louisa, is there anything that's really standing out to you about the Venice Biennale?
1: Well, of course, the Venice Biennale, which has been postponed, I hasten to add, came into being in this time of incredible upheaval, pandemic, Black Lives Matter, I mean, just across the globe, seismic. And Celia Alamani, the curator, is saying that yes, she's going to be addressing this. I love the fact that that the title is The Milk of Dreams, which is actually a book by the, by the surrealist Leonora Carrington and more about surrealism anon because there's a big surrealist show <laughs> coming up. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the Biennale addresses these unprecedented times. Having said that, there's some, uh, some pavilions that I'm massively looking forward to. We don't know all of them yet, but I mean, we've got um, Sonia Boyce in the UK pavilion. We've got Simone Lee um, in the American pavilion. We've got Alberta Whittle. These three great black women in, in their national pavilions for the first time ever. So things are being shaken up immediately, I think, and... I know their work well enough to know that they're going to be very much addressing nationalism, the past, history, colonialism. I know that Simone Lee is actually saying that she's dedicating her her pavilion to the experiences and contributions of black women, not just in the art point of view, but she's had a whole lot of education projects in schools across the Veneto. So it's not just sort of the art elite, it's actually going out into the educational infrastructure. So that's fab. Also the pavilions themselves seem to be messing with nationalism. I'm loving the fact that the um, Nordic Pavilion, that beautiful, modernist exquisite uh, piece of architecture in the Giardini, is actually going to be given over to artists, three artists in the Sapmi region, which is the far north, which is former Norway, former Sweden, former Finland, former Russia, before these national boundaries were even drawn up. So immediately they're messing with that. The Netherlands are giving up their pavilion to Estonia and having a, an amazing sounding artist who's actually a sex therapist who's going to be dispensing dispensing services. I think the art world could possibly do with a bit of that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's already a sense of things you know, old orders hopefully being toppled. Having said that, it is, you know, the big event of the international art world, which is a fantastically elitist affair, a fantastically white male-dominated affair. And, you know, it's going to take more than some changing names to change that, but it does look very positive to me that these kind of, you know, orthodoxies are being questioned. And I love the fact it's a quote from a surrealist woman based in Mexico that's kind of giving it the overarching theme. So let's hope things are suitably messed up. I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Chibundu, you've not been to Venice, is that right?
1: I've not been I've not been to Venice at all. So even so forget
2: the Biennale, I haven't been ever. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been ever. But see what I find interesting is I can understand why I haven't been or I haven't even been particularly interested in being. You know, you're talking about in 2022 you're having the first black woman to represent X, Y, Z. It's sort of like, this is so not a space that has been welcoming to black artists and black artists and their expression. So like, it's it's almost like the fact that the first is happening in 2022, I just think you guys are not serious. You know, you're, you're, you're just, I, I don't even want to engage. You know, there's so many other sites now. There's so many other places where I can see art that, reflects on my own experience, reflects on my own expertise, my own life, things that I can directly connect to as an individual. And I'm not just saying that people can only look at art or engage with art that comes from their own personal experience, but just the fact that the experiences of certain groups of people have been so deliberately excluded from this sort of
1: bastion and well the fact that there used to be with great trumpet voluntaries only a few years ago an african pavilion i mean can you imagine having a european pavilion you know it's absolutely shocking Mm, yeah
2: for an entire continent so i mean okay nice i think it's great that sonia boyce is being recognized you know she's been working for a long time you know she didn't start today it's it's great that these accolades are coming her way But at the same time, I sort of feel like, okay, we'll see. Maybe I'll make it this year. Maybe not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that's always interesting about the show at the heart of the Biennale is this sort of ebbing and flowing between different types of curators. Cecilia Alimani is... Clearly going for a quite literary theme, we've had very politically minded biennials in the past, exhibitions which have been much more about just sort of form and more loosely connected to a particular theme. Do you sense anything about the kind of art that we're going to be seeing, Louisa, in, in what Cecilia what Alemanis said so far?
1: I think she's smart enough to realise that you can't have some kind of vacuum-packed curatorial concept that everybody then immediately objects to the fact they haven't remotely adhered to them. I mean, Massimiliano his, um a show a long time ago, which is about... So called outsider art, so called art working outside, you know, art education, art worked very well because there was enough flexibility. And I think here she's deliberately left it very phantasmagoric, very kind of surreal, very kind of fluid. So that, you know, there are many, many agendas of, I mean, surrealism, of course, as we'll be discussing, was about political resistance. It was about actually a whole kind of global adherence. And I think she's smart enough to realize that Leonora Carrington's vision was very much can accommodate and obviously it 's not all about leonora Carrington, but she 's left it wide enough because you know the biennale is not just about the curatorial theme, of course it is about the temper of the times, and each of those pavilions, the national pavilions, which are not under her jurisdiction, will be curated by separate people as well so it 's a great big bonker's melting pot, but I think in as much as you know it's a, it's a smart idea of hers to keep it as as wide and as diverse as possible because then you know one can see what crop up i have no idea she did a great job on the high line i like her curatorial vision i think she's very smart she's very aware of what's going on she did a good job with freeze as well you know she covers all the different kind of sectors of the art world and let's see what she does i mean again i said cautiously optimistic it is a deeply flawed enterprise the Venice Biennale of course but within that it is fascinating in its cracks you know to Coin the old cliché, a bit of light does come through sometimes, so here's
0: hoping. And, of course, there's a whole raft of collateral shows just worth a couple of mentions... Um, Marlene Dumas is at the Palazzo Grassi. Well, that should love be her, a really so interesting great, show. She's, you know. Yeah, fascinating artist. And then Surrealism again, and Surrealism and Magic at the Guggenheim, which should be again a, a really fascinating show.
1: And they've got such a great core collection there. I mean, yes. I mean, and and Venice itself is just divine. So <laughs> I think you know, and you do see these odd nooks and crannies of the city in these so-called collateral projects, which are in spaces you'd never normally get to see. So I, it is worth a visit. <laughs> I mean, I'm just smiling because. Because
2: Ben said
0: there's a whole raft of shows at Venice. Ha ha. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you might need it Slightly <laughs> sinking sometimes, yes. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that was really sort of important in terms of the last Venice Biennale is the Ghanaian Pavilion, for instance, mm. is one of the standout yes, pavilions. And I think yes. that's one of the things, again, that will be judged in terms of how 21st century the Venice Biennale really is becoming, is the extent to which the pavilions from outside of Europe are centralized and become absolutely part of that discussion.
2: I know is is the funny thing and I also sort of have this um conflict sort of contest within me. So you look at these spaces and you say, Oh, it's taking you it's taking so long for them to allow quote unquote black people, people from different sort of ethnicities into these spaces. So you on one hand you think, well, I don't want to care about Venice Biennale, whatever. But then when you hear about Nana Fourier curation of the Ghana Pavilion you still sort of kind of give a chair. So, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll be I'll be one over, maybe.
0: <laughs> the other the other huge event of course is Documenta. Uh, Venice is in April by the way, and in June we have Documenta. Documenta has a A sort of, in a way, if Venice is a sort of vast and sprawling enterprise, documentary is always seen as much more tightly uh, curated. It often has a much more theoretical basis. This year, it's it's again a very distinctive form of curation, Louisa.
1: Well, yes, the Indonesian art collective Warungrupa. So it's not one artist, it's several from Indonesia and it's devoted to activist collectives from across the world, but particularly the global south, from Kenya, from Cambodia, from Asia. And honestly, again, mere maxima culpa, I don't know of virtually any of these collectives who are showing a documentary. I can't wait to see it. It's such a relief, actually, not to be trudging through the usual suspects not to be trudging through, although I love some of the usual suspects, but you know, it's going to be a real eye-opener and, you know, really quite a shaming eye-opener and I hope. I hope I will feel very uncomfortable and very ignorant and and very enlightened, or at least, you know, a bit enlightened, uh, when I leave it, because Documenta isn't like Venice because it hasn't got the market in the same way. Venice is meant to be curated. Everybody still buys and sells stuff out of Venice. It's got all this weird nationalist stuff still going on and people who are in and people who are out. Whereas Documenta, it's down to the curator, you know. It rises and falls by the curator. So let's see how these guys do. I mean, they've done interesting, very interesting stuff in the past as I said the hit list of, of of people taking part I knew virtually none of them so I was I, I can't
0: wait. Chibundu, there's this sort of idea about collectivity the collective spirit it seems to me that th- this is a sort of central thing which is which is Almost a sort of reaction, it seems to me, to the art market to a degree. On the one hand, we have huge sums of money being sold at auction and in the galleries. And then you have a sort of almost another art world, which is focusing on things like collectivity and sustainability. And that seems to me to be a big thrust of this documenter.
2: I think it was two years ago that the guys who won the Turner Prize refused to have one winner and sort of split it between four of them. So, yeah, that's definitely a trend or hopefully not a trend actually maybe just a new philosophy a new way of thinking that art is not a competition um and it's funny one of the exhibitions we're going to talk or we might get to talking about was talking about um how donatello the artist is being reappraised and the curator described him as being more important than Giotto Raphael or caravaggio and oh. it's, not a, it's not the olympics The Renaissance Olympics, you know. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, sort of rethinking. I think, yeah, this is definitely, like... I hope it's here to stay. Because art can't really compete. And, you know, the the market around it or so the 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 news reporting around it wants to always make a compete around who has the highest auction figures or who has had the most exhibitions et cetera. but that's not sort of that's that's not what art does that's not why artists create their work so yeah
1: i i love it but i think you've got to be very careful though about the quick knee-jerk virtue signalling that is sweeping across (laughs) the art world, you know. I mean, I'm looking... Just back to the biennials again, the Sydney biennial. I mean, José Rocha, the Colombian curator, who is artistic director, I mean... All credit to him. You go, you go on the website and immediately it bounces up that they acknowledge the traditional owners of country, in particular the Gadiel people, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, to the Eora Nation on whose land the Biennale of Sydney is located. They acknowledge their continuing connection to land, to water, to culture. Well, yeah, 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 but, you know... Is money being given? Is infrastructure being given? To acknowledge the previous owners, to call it river after river. Although I did love the fact that the word river um, is the origin also of the word rivalry, which I didn't know that. Mm. A new, to- new fun fact. But But, you know... <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that Sydney Biennial is virtue signalling. I think it sounds like an extremely interesting biennial that is about sustainability, is about acknowledging homeland people. But what is actually the benefit of these people? What's their benefit? What's actually going to come out of this? I mean, they say sustainability should be an action, not a theme. Well, let's just see the action. That is the proof of the pudding. This is the future pavilions, you know. So, I mean, as I, I keep using the word cautious optimism, but, you know, I am quite cautious. The art world is under underpinned by big money, big oh. interests. Uh, our institutions need big money from whatever source, frankly, to, to, to survive, you know, and they're all unpicking that furiously. But I, I do just want to see real action and real change, not just a lot of signal, signal, signal.
0: And one of the things about the... Approach to documenter This is that they too are talking about sustainability, and they have formed collectives of collectives w- with a mind to sharing resources. And I and I think that means intellectual, but also physical resources, and having a kind of sustainable kind of groups of artists who somehow riff off each other, but also work together. And it seems to me that if we're going to be talking about these massive art world events where loads of people coalesce in a particular place in the world from different parts of the world a more sustainable thinking has got to be at the heart of it, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, and a more homogenous thinking from sharing consignments for art shipping to artists thinking about their materials to realising that, you know, climate change and and climate justice is also intimately, inextricably connected with social justice, you know. I mean, all these things have got to be, and again, implementing change, genuine change, counting your carbon, looking at the diversity on your museum boards, looking at the sources of your income, these things are not all little siloed packages and I think there's got to be such huge systemic change in the art world I mean there are kind of nibblings and there's movements and I'm involved in a thing called Gallery Climate Coalition about the market trying to be more sustainable and count its carbon and people are genuinely wanting to do this but you know I do think you're right Ben there is actually a cultural shift in that people are acknowledging they can't really kick this under the carpet anymore but I think we've got to be so vigilant to make sure this is being actually implemented not just sort of you know rehearsed on the press release or in the catalogue essay yeah i think definitely real change starts with virtue
2: signaling i think the problem is not thinking that the battle has been won once the virtual once the virtual signaling starts you know i think i think yes definitely heading in direction but you're right you have to to be vigilant keep making sure that movement continues
0: uh, just wanted to mention a couple of other big shows we don't really know much about them but they are i think landmark shows which happen again periodically one is the whitney biannual of course hugely influential event every uh, two years this one is actually a triennial because it's happened three years after the last one we know the curators david breslin and Adrienne edwards but we don't know anything about the theme or artist yet that happens between april and august then there's the carnegie international again we know the curators sorab mohebi is leading a curatorial team lots of curators involved in that one that happens in september so i think both of those are going to be the kind of the key US biennials that are happening this year.
1: And then there's the Berlin Biennial, of course, which is going to be, I think, really interesting because the artist, Kader Attia, is curating it. And, you know, he's a fantastic thinker, an artist, a mixer-upper, Algerian-French artist. I mean, I loved his Museum of Emotion show at the Hayward in 2019, which really looked at the ways in which, you know, European, non-European art, the interconnection, the exchange of ideas, the whole notion of organizing and making sort of museological taxonomies to try and tidy up uncomfortable realities and he blew all that apart but making this incredible all those cliches of wunderkammer and cabinets of curiosities all the deliciousness of that was rehearsed but in a gloriously inverted way and I'm so looking forward to seeing what he does in Berlin to, to really you know mix-up, the whole word decolonization has been so rehearsed, but I think if anybody can make, make a real point with this and really, really challenge orthodoxies, but in a kind of constructive way, he says his ideas are all about repair and reparation. So it's, it's a positive but doesn't mean to say any of the less critical view of what's been going on. So I mean, I'm again really looking forward to, to the Berlin Biennial which opens in June. Yeah,
2: I mean, I love Kedarsian's work. I saw his exhibition at the Hayward as well and for me he just interrogates the idea of where is the center is there a center who is the person that disseminates their influence to the world and I just I, I just love that it'll be interesting because obviously at the end of the day you're talking about decolonization in Berlin perhaps the geographical location (laughs) is not the best place to do. But then at the same time, it's all the... We're better, in a way. (laughs) Well, yes, but it's all the real-life restrictions and real-life hamperings that mean that, you know, still where is the money, where is the funding and all of that. That means that that conversation is still happening geographically um, in sort of Europe. It'll be interesting to see what he does.
0: It will indeed. Let's stay in Europe. You mentioned Donatello earlier on, Chibundu, and, and I think you're looking forward to this one, aren't you, Louisa?
1: Well, yes, I am, because I'm a little art history girl, you know, and it was, it's a long time since I've been to Florence, actually. And I think I'm going to jump on the train after Venice and go to the Donatello. I'm not listening to all that hit parade nonsense about whether he's better than Duccio or Michelangelo <laughs> or whoever. I love him. Ever since I saw his penitent Magdalene sculpture, which is so Harrowing and grueling and unglamorous, this terrifying, aged woman. And then his sexy David, who's just absolutely. Gorgeous. And the crazy Zucconi, that, that crazy old man sculpture that was on, on the outside of the Duomo now in the, in the, in the museum of, of, in Florence. You know, so I love it that, that it's, it's, it's the city where he came from. Yes, all his peers are around him. So to see a really amazing work, bringing work from all across, you know, all across the museums into this place will be really exciting for me. And it's going to be my kind of post Venice treat to go and have a look at that.
0: And it's vast, of course. I mean, one of the good things about Donatello. Is- there's enough work to put on a show of this kind of scale. It's at the Strozzi and at the Museo del Bargello. And it's a, so it's a vast yep. show in two venues. It's a proper treatment, you know.
1: And being across venues. And this is happening more and more, I think, both in the institutional sphere and the commercial sphere where galleries are collaborating. Again, it's, it's more sustainable. It's richer for the viewer. It's not this sort of competitiveness about, you know, I'm going to get more visitor figures than you. We're going to spread the love. And I mean, you know, he's a great figure. Bigger, and I just think it's something that's going to be a, a total treat to see him in his native city on the scale. I love to see an artist reappraised, actually.
2: So I was still sort of teasing the curator. I don't think it's a competition between him and whoever his contemporaries were. But I think it, it's nice to see that hundreds of years later, he can still have his day in the sun. And sometimes you feel that, and especially when you think of black artists, African artists who lived and died and didn't always have their moment, so you think well if a curator is passionate about about the artist enough, then you know these artists that you thought that you know they, they missed their time in the sun, they they can still come back. So Yay for Donatello <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wanted to stay in Europe for a bit longer. There's several mainland Europe shows which I think are interesting. One um which is actually a version no not uh, not exactly the same of the Steve McQueen show which was at Tate Modern a couple of years back just before the pandemic hit and in fact got curtailed because of it um, that's at hangar Bachoca in Milan and Louisa that was an astonishing show isn't it the people in Milan are, are in for a real treat.
1: Well, they are, and it'll be a very different show to Tate Modern because the thing about Steve McQueen is that he's absolutely scrupulous about the installation of his work, how it's seen, how it's perceived, down to the tiniest details, the order in which works are seen, the, you know, all this. So, obviously, it's a very different space, Hannah Bacocker, to Tate Modern. So, I'm very much hoping I can get to see it because it will be a very different show. Same works, but, you know, there'll be a totally different feel about them because of their physical environment. And, of course, you know, you can't see Steve McQueen's work too much as far as I'm concerned.
0: Before we leave Central Europe, I just want to uh, mention a couple of things at, at the Pompidou. Firstly, there is a Charles Ray show, um, which is at the Pompidou beginning in February, but it's also at the Bourse du Commerce, of course, the new grand new museum pinot museum in the center of paris so that should be really interesting but there's also this show which is not very much talked about but i think it might be a classic Pompidou show which is called réseau monde which is network worlds and it's just it sounds to me like it might be one of those classic Pompidou shows, which were loads of different disciplines, design, architecture, theory, visual arts, film, everything comes together to explore the idea of networks. It might be really obscure, it might be terrible, but it might be one of those classic Pompidou shows, which are kind of, I've sort of got, I have a certain um, misty-eyed love for.
1: Or will it be the kind of show where actually the catalogue's better than the show?
0: It might well be. That's a very good point. I think that's probably the case with some of those 1980s classic shows. Um, right, let's go to the UK. Um, Jibundu, you wanted to talk about the Stonehenge show at British Museum, didn't I know.
2: Yes, I wanted to talk about the world of Stonehenge. I want to congratulate the British Museum on using artefacts found in Britain. And I would like to encourage them to continue on this trajectory <laughs> and return all the looted objects. I'm like... <laughs> Well done, curators. You found some artifacts in Britain. Stick with that. So, you know, there's going to be on display the Nebra Sky Disc, which allegedly is the oldest surviving image of the cosmos. When I read that, I was like, hmm, I almost want to go on a dig to like where the aztecs lived or you know well, Go well to yes <laughs> <Exactly>. immediately <laughs> but um okay allegedly well okay fine but at least it was found in britain there's apparently a sea henge i didn't know there was a sea henge there's a stone henge. there's a sea henge maybe there will be a wind henge a fire henge who knows <laughs> but yes um i don't know if you guys saw the vice media um interactive tour of the british museum where you know you can take your phone and make a video or something of one of of the the artifacts and then they give you the real history the the, the looted history of the object um so yes um do more digs in britain british
1: museum and return our return our stuff well i have to say that this does a little segue into one of the shows that I'm really looking forward to because one of my all-time favourite kind of anti-monumental, monumental sculptures was Jeremy Deller's Inflated Stonehenge. It was a giant mm. bouncy castle in the shape of Stonehenge, which, um, to its great foolishness, I think, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park <laughs> did not accept when Jeremy offered uh-huh. to give it to them. But anyway, you know, this is an idea of a fantastically enormous piece of kit that's playing around with sacred cows, you know, with, with, mm. with monuments, but in a way that everybody can enjoy who doesn't love a Buncey Castle? And actually Jeremy Della is one of the artists who's taking part in a show that I'm really looking forward to. It's opening on my doorstep in South London which is Testament at Goldsmiths CCA. Opens this month and it's basically a rethink of monuments. You know, how after the Black Lives Matter protests, after a pandemic, after Brexit, with climate crisis, how do we look at monuments? How do we rethink history? You know, There's going to be quite a lot of, I think, very satirical takes on the old retain and explain hideous Mantra that we want to see abolished forever, um, but the artists uh, Alvaro Barrington, Phila Dibarlo, De Jeremy Della, Oscar Murillo. I don't know what they're going to be doing, but I cannot wait because I love this idea of of toppling and messing with monuments. And actually, that's. Another thing that I'm keen on saying, then I'll be quiet in a minute, but another work, apropos monuments, I'm very keen on is um, Hugh Locke in the Duveen at Tate Britain because he's one of the artists who has been messing with monuments brilliantly for so long I mean adorning all these terrifying kind of conquering generals and colonialists he's been bedecking their sculptures or if he hasn't done it literally he's done it in ideas with cowrie shells ornamentation just rechanging their image making them into something completely non sort of white colonial making them into these strange kind of avenging horrors basically and what he's going to do in the Juvine's gallery I don't know but I can't wait and that's in Mars and
0: it, Chibindu, it seems to me that it's like a really apt moment where we're actually seeing art performing the role that uh, some more conservative historians don't seem to want to, which is actually explaining history and finding new roots into history. And, you know, that's this It seems to me is the absolutely mature response to monuments and statues and everything else, to get artists to think about it, to get people to think about them, right?
2: Mm. I guess that's the thing. So I'm excited to see the work. But at the same time, and maybe this is the historian in me who says, do you let things become history first before you respond to them? So it's interesting to hear, you know, people are responding to um, the Black Lives Matter movement, but I feel like we're still living in it. But I suppose it's, it's, um, it's part of this. I guess you will have people, the responses that happened at the time, and then you have the responses that happened five years later and 10 years later and so on and so forth. So I think, It's definitely an interesting
1: time. I like the idea of complicating too. I Mm. mean, I totally agree with you, Chipunda. We're right, we're still in the midst of it. And I think the Testament Goldsmith show, it's it's about addressing monuments in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be within a particular context. I mean, obviously you can't ignore the pervasive context, but it may not be addressing Black Lives Matter Mm. specifically. It's addressing the notion of a monument, Mm. permanence, you know, the authoritarian view. And I just like the fact that I totally agree with you, Ben. It's the right of art is to mess things up, to complicate, to show other viewpoints and not to let one orthodoxy dominate, really. Indeed.
0: Um, while we're on the subject at Tate Britain, um, Cornelia Parker has a retrospective show, long overdue, actually. Cornelia Parker has been a major figure on the British art scene for some time and she has a retrospective, Louisa.
1: Well, yes, I've, I've been a huge fan of hers for, for many years. I mean, Cold Dark Matter, The Exploded Shed is one of my all-time favourite works. Also the way that she deals with Britishness I mean that whole memorial poppy installation in Manchester she did a while ago with a whole draped room of the holes left by stamping out the poppy the memorial poppies in the fabric she plays with materials in a way really that's unprecedented and I love the way that her work, there's no signature style, there's no single voice she's working in neon at the moment it's about what you can do with materials you wouldn't know where she came from actually apart from the poppy thing, I suppose it's quite English. But I love the fact that her work looks so kind of... It references art history all over the place, but in such a specific way. So I can't wait to see what she does at, at Tate Britain. There'll be a lot of old friends there, but there's going to be new work as well. And she always confounds. And I think it's great she's getting her proper recognition.
0: Meanwhile, coming up at Tate Modern, there's an exhibition which I think all three of us are really interested in seeing. It's actually at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York right now and then comes to Tate Modern shortly. And it's called Surrealism Beyond Borders. And Jibundo, you particularly wanted to talk about this, didn't you?
2: Well, I wanted to talk about the premise of the show. Again, it's that centering of a European art history. So it's Surrealism Beyond Borders. But it starts in Europe and then the ideas disseminate and spread to the rest of the world from here. And I love that we've already mentioned Keda Atia because that's what he does in his work. He's asking, why do we think of Europe as the art centre? And in particular, so for example, in the the Hayward exhibition, he puts um, a photograph of Edward Munch's The Scream next to a pandemic sickness mask and he puts them side by side and suddenly you think well who is influencing who where where did you get these ideas from um and so i'm but it's interesting that obviously kedia atia is a private individual he's not an institution and so it's still institutions with these sort of mega exhibitions they do they are still sometimes or often still sort of portraying europe as the center of art influence and I, and i'm looking forward to when the tate sort of does an exhibition that puts African masks at the beginning and puts Picasso at the end. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I'm I'm looking forward to that.
0: (laughs) It's it's interesting in the context of surrealism, isn't it, Louisa? Because, Because, of course, Breton collected African masks and there was an undoubted colonial thinking in the way that he was this grand figure that went all around the world. And yet, one of the things I hope that we'll see in this show is that surrealism, while the tenets of this very particular form of surrealism emerged from Breton in Paris, actually, surrealism as a movement was a global phenomenon and, and had many origins. And And in fact, so many parts of the world were innately surrealist. They had an, an, a natural way of being surrealist, right?
1: Well, this is it. I think you know. Yes, Breton—he was called the Pope of Surrealism, and he loved the so-called, you know, primitive um, images of, of, of African art. When, of course, you know these were civilizations that, that predated what, what was going on in France at the time. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it was kind of nonsense that they were talking. But, but I think the energy of non-specific art, historical thought, and folklore, fantasy, the subconscious, Freud, and then that triggers out and spools out. I'm thinking of Mexico, I'm thinking of Frida Kahlo and I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera was not a surrealist but Frida Kahlo was. Famous. But, you know, Trotsky came and stayed. Trotsky was assassinated in Mexico. You know, the proper political side of surrealism was was developed there. And then you have surrealism now spooling out into Japan, into across Asia. I'm looking forward very much to seeing the works of Wilfredo Lamb He was born in Cuba. He lived in Paris. He then had to leave Paris. Um, when, when the Second World War happened, he went back to the Caribbean and then tapped into all the traditions that he found himself surrounded by, found them completely resonating with his surrealists and indeed surpassing them. So then he makes kind of Afro-Cuban surrealist work, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. So you get this, as you say, Ben, this kind of idea that it taps into all kinds of movements, traditions, activities are already going on in all these different parts of the world that chime, but I think are very central to what's going on. Surrealism and Breton, him making all his manifestos, are kind of completely irrelevant with most of these artists. You know, it was more this idea that you could tap into something that wasn't some kind of Northern European, you know, orthodoxy that you then had to depart from in a rather flamboyant way. You know, it's actually about grassroots interesting works that are going on in that way that Surrealism kind of chimes with.
2: But I guess, but again, this comes back to my thing about where is the centre and who does the naming. If you're saying that, you know, there were people all around the world who were making art that was dealing with the subconscious, well then, wh- what did they call their art movement? Did they call it Surrealism? No, they probably called it something else. So why isn't Breton part of their movement?
1: <laughs> no, I and I, I think it's, it's a very convenient way to bring a lot of threads together, by having this kind of surrealist umbrella and I totally take your point. I also think it was quite useful for them to get wider recognition wider exposure by kind of hitching themselves a bit to that wagon albeit perhaps with gritted teeth (laughs) Um, so you know I think it it is a kind of complex two way traffic I totally take your point that you know it should be perhaps beyond borders you know dash surrealism rather than surrealism (laughs) beyond borders I mean you know and whose borders? (laughs) Who draws those borders? But nonetheless I'm Looking forward to seeing a shed load of work and that actually put Magritte, Dali, Miro, all the big names of, of surrealism in a much more interesting various context and some great women too. Ithel Cahoon, I can't wait to see lots of her work out there. So, you know, it will be a great show, but I agree with you. Yeah, the old, the old polarity needs to get adjusted, definitely.
0: Some of the things we've just been talking about are actually very directly connected to a show which I'm really, really looking forward to at the Hayward Gallery in the summer, which is this exhibition called In the Black Fantastic and it's an exhibition which looks at lots of black artists from Europe and America and particularly artists like Ellen Gallagher, who's an extraordinary artist and Kara Walker and then Hugh Locke again, for instance, and and is looking at some of the things that we were talking about, but also directly connected to African traditions, spiritualist traditions, folkloric traditions, some of which, of course, are explored in the Life Between Islands show, which is at Tate Britain now. So there's nice cross-currents between all sorts of different shows going on. Chibundu, do you want to say something about In the Black Fantastic?
2: Well, yeah, I guess I want to see what Afrofuturism means in a visual sense, actually, because I'm a writer, so I know... What it means when it comes to literature. When I when you say Afrofuturism, I think of Nedio Korafo, I think of Tade Iqbalayola. There are loads of authors that immediately come to mind, but then I want to see what Echoes is going to do actually, and how he's going to bring or what works, what examples of these artists' works is he going to bring together? I don't instinctively think Afrofuturist when I hear Chris Ophelia's name, for example, but then I guess you know he might have a much Broader output that I'm aware of. And so I, I'm actually quite interested to see how he's going to put it together. It will be exciting.
1: And the whole notion of science fiction and, and, you know, phantasmagoric. I mean, all these different kinds of strands have gone through mm. music to a great extent mm. and film, um, but haven't actually been realised. And the carnival and you know, these aspects I've I've seen in in, in Christopher work. work, um, but also Wangetu Mutu as well. Her her work this this idea of fantasy carnival. I mean, it ties in with with the current show at Tate Britain, the, the Caribbean show, also with the surrealism beyond borders. And it you know it makes nonsense of these kind of vacuum. Impact ideas. I mean, curators have to give titles, but I just love the fact it will be very trenchant. It will be very you know, addressing many iniquities, many you know appalling injustices, but in a way that. Has a different take, it has a carnivalesque, a, a kind of extraordinary, rich take. I mean, I love the idea of the, the mythologies. I, th- I think it's just going to be really exciting just to see what what it throws up and again just makes more interconnections and also kind of dispels orthodoxies and stereotypes. I guess I love the subtitle actually in the Black Fantastic. Mm. I think
2: sometimes, you know, black artists, there's sometimes this pressure to make work. That is political or to make work that responds to things like, you know, Black Lives Matter. And obviously there's a place for that work. But just the idea of being in the Black fantastic, whatever this looks like, where,
1: you know, people's imagination can run free and run boundless. I'm really looking forward to this exhibition. I mean, talking of fantastic, I want to get in a a show that I'm really excited about, too, that's opening next month in February, which is Anthea Hamilton's show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Antwerp. I mean, she's an artist who is not afraid of spectacle, who is not afraid of flamboyance, who cross references with fashion, with choreography, with stage design, but also makes very trenchant political points as well. And I think she celebrates hybridity and she's going to be making a really interesting series of installations, some of which we will have have seen elements of, like the squash that she did in in Tate Javine's gallery, which was was with um, Lueve Fashion Design, uh, her Turner Prize shortlist, that great extraordinary backside doorway, um, but also many new works as well, dealing with rich references to art history to tradition but also to kind of the racism within the art world but in a very oblique very trenchant humorous way and I mean I'm so looking forward to her work which in many expects will be very spectacular and very fantastic but also very specific and very unique she's got an extraordinary voice and it's a shame that you know it's not coming to the UK but hurrah it's in Antwerp so I'm going to try and see if I can jump on a Eurostar and get there.
0: Okay, well, thanks for your thoughts so far. We're going to take a break here for a few of the top stories on our website this week, but I'll be back with Chibundu and Louisa very soon. The Taiwanese artist Sakuliu Pavavalyung has been removed from representing Taiwan at the 2022 Venice Biennale following several accusations of sexual assault. The announcement was made on Wednesday by the Taipei Fine Arts Museum, as Lisa Simovius reports. Documenta 15 also announced the suspension of Sekuliu's participation in the exhibition in Kassel in Germany this coming June, pending a review. An allegation that Sekuliu raped an anonymous woman emerged on the 16th of December last year on Facebook and it was followed by several more accounts of sexual assault and harassment. Sekuliu denies all allegations. The Serpentine in London has removed the controversial Sackler name from its gallery building. As Jose de Silva writes, although the institution underwent a rebranding in spring last year, changing the name of its second space from Serpentine Sackler Gallery to Serpentine North on its marketing materials, the original name remained prominently displayed above the gallery's main entrance until this year. The Serpentine was one of several museums that came under huge pressure to dissociate themselves from the Sackler name. This followed a host of lawsuits and a 2017 New Yorker magazine investigation implicating the family firm Purdue Farm in the US opioid crisis through its aggressive marketing of the addictive painkiller OxyContin. The gallery has not explicitly said that the name was removed because of the controversies. According to a spokesperson, the decision was the result of discussions with the Serpentine Board and the Sackler Foundation was consulted before the removal. An image of a Madonna and child has been discovered beneath Botticelli's Man of Sorrows, which is due to be sold at Sotheby's in New York later this month, as Alison Cole reports. Technical analysis undertaken by the auction house revealed an upside-down composition similar to a Madonna of tenderness, a type derived from Greek icons, in which the Madonna intimately cradles the head of the baby Christ against her own. Chris Apostle, the senior vice president and director of Old Master Paintings at Sotheby's in New York, believes Botticelli may have simply reused an abandoned picture for his painting, as he says panel was a valuable commodity in the Renaissance. The painting is expected to sell for $40 million on 27th of January. You can read these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This January, Christie's New York is pleased to present a new take on Americana Week, a series of four live and online auctions that now includes 19th century American art. Immerse yourself in enchanting winter scenes by Frederick Edwin Church, alongside other landscapes attributed to the Hudson River School. Engage with American folk cult from the Goodman Collection. Marvel at the assortment of decorative arts, notably portraits of George Washington, engravings of Lexington and Concord by Doolittle and Colonial Silver. Find out more at christies.com Now I'm back with Chibundu and Louisa talking about 2022's big shows Shall we turn to uh, North America now? I wanted to look at um, this Faith Ringgold show at the new museum, Chibundu
2: I'm so excited I, I cannot <laughs> believe that Faith Ringgold has never had, like, a retrospective show in, like, New York, her hometown, which is what, again, what I was saying about artists being reappraised and how sometimes you may not have your time in the sun when you think you will have it, but it's just wonderful to see her getting her time in the sun. There's, um... A fantastic documentary on her life that you know BBC did I think last year two years ago it's called imagine and it just goes through how she was making this work that was amazing in her 30s in her 40s in her 50s and nobody was interested no one was interested in, in giving her a show nobody was interested, and yet she was responding to just such a turbulent time in America's history and again actually this is what I'm saying about how sometimes perhaps history doesn't have to become history so faith ringold is sort of the perfect example of how you respond to society and the ups and downs and you know, social justice issues in the moment. And her work is definitely a
1: testament to that. Absolutely. I interviewed her for the art newspaper when she had that great show at the Serpentine, at the same time as Alan Yentob made the Imagine film about her. And I mean, I was just awestruck to be talking to her. I was gobsmacked by the work. I'd seen the odd piece here and there in collections and just the Energy. I mean, you know, she's now in her nineties, and is absolutely, she was full of extraordinary energy when I interviewed her. And the oh. children's books that she that she made, which you know, took her ideas, the story quilts, and I can't believe you're so right. I mean, not to have had a major show in her hometown. I mean. way overdue.
0: Indeed. And I wanted to talk about another show, which was actually much debated in the context of race when it was postponed. It was actually during the COVID pandemic. We're still within the COVID pandemic now, but it was in the early stages of the COVID pandemic. But it wasn't postponed because of COVID. It It was actually because the museums involved took a decision that they felt that in the light of recent developments, the works by Philip Guston dealing with the Ku Klux Klan had not been sufficiently contextualised in the original vision of the show. It caused an enormous storm in the art world, and I know that Louisa and I have expressed our views on it in print, I think, and it's something that a lot of us were very vexed by because they, the, the original curatorial vision had embraced African-American viewpoints, so artists like Glenn Ligon, for instance. But at last, Philip Guston now is coming to museums this year. It will be in Boston from the 30th of March and then in Houston in October before travelling to Washington and, and London next year. What do you think, doing? Do you think it was a good decision to postpone it? Do you think there is scope to recontextualise it in an effective way? And what do you think we're going to learn from this whole process?
2: Okay, so I'm going to give you... A little bit of a sideways before I give you my answer. So in a Nigerian context, we had the NSAS protest that happened in 2020. It was against sort of police brutality, Um, similar issues to the Black Lives Matter um, protest in America, but again, very specifically locally against police brutality in Nigeria, in particular against a police unit called the SARS unit, hence the NSAS. Um, So there's a big Nigerian musician called WizKid. And he had scheduled an album that was going to be released in the same week as suddenly this process, massive process, kicked off. And he postponed his album release because he thought, this is not quite the time. So it's not about, you know, is it, the album was called Made in Lagos. And he thought, this moment where people are shouting about, you know, social injustice People are not going to be able to hear my work. They're not going to be able to appreciate my work. They're not going to be able to properly engage with the ideas within my work. The moment is too heated. And I think it was absolutely the right decision to say, you know what? This is not a cancellation. This is just this moment is too heated for this, this is for this type of work to be displayed. And I think, yes, it's excellent that you know it's coming back. You know, the thing is, the Black Lives Matter movement isn't over. So of course these conversations are still relevant. But at that point, when people were marching on the streets, when people that that was definitely not the time, um, and so I think yeah, it was it was definitely the right um, decision.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, but I think I think I'm aware that I got very worked up about this because I felt he was campaigning in those pictures against injustice but now that I've cooled down and actually Glenn Ligon the artist did actually eventually say you know actually I think maybe everybody got a bit too heated about that and maybe it was a good idea to postpone it from a distant perspective I can see to a certain extent why the museums made their decision what I hope is that we don't have Guston's vision contextualized to such a degree that you can't see the work I suppose well, the,
1: the difference is surely as well is that you were talking about the actual artist deciding to stop showing Mm. not to release his album. Philip Guston's no longer with us and it looked very much like he was being thrown under the bus at this point. We can argue round the houses about whether or not it should have been postponed. I mean, Ben and I were kind of a one, but I also hear your point as well. Let's just see what this show now is like. Let's see what they do. I think the proof of the pudding will really be in how this show is presented, what the curatorial stance is. The catalogue's out there. The catalogue was published, so it has its catalogue already. So let's see now how the show is presented and how it's received. Yeah, I just think in the heat of the moment
2: there's no time for nuance and his work requires nuance, you know, so you you need that Take a deep breath. <laughs> I think.
0: Um another show which is actually coming to the UK too is a big Cézanne show at the Art Institute of Chicago, huge full survey of his work which is um, coming to Tate Modern in October. Cezanne is an artist who is an artist-artist and I was intrigued to see that Jasper Johns is lending work to this show and so we have a contemporary living artist who's still invested in Cezanne's ideas and Cezanne is a sort of perennial artist reference point isn't he Louisa?
1: Yeah I mean he's obviously a colossal titan figure in, in art history I've never been a wild Cezanne fan, I have to say. I know I totally see his importance. I totally see his, you know, iconic status. I totally see how Picasso and all that lot thought he was... But, you know, I mean, I will go. Of course I'll go, but I, I will go. I'm not rushing. It's not my absolute... I will definitely go and I'll spend time there and, and, you know, furrow my brow. The watercolours, I adore. I think Cezanne's watercolours are absolutely stunning and I can see his importance. But, you know, a Matisse show, a Picasso show, if we're talking about... the sort of you know that kind of status of figure is going to rock my boat harder but yeah sure I'm, I'm you know determined it will absolutely go because I'm a good art history girl.
0: Now our work of the week segment is going to be back next week but instead of it this week I thought I'd end this discussion by asking you to name a work or works that you're most looking forward to seeing in 2022. Louisa.
1: Oh, Lord, that's such a difficult question. Because I just talked about so many shows that I'm dying to see. You know, the extraordinary Afro-Cuban surrealism of Wilfredo Lamb, for example, in more quantity than ever in Surrealism Across the Borders. Some of my favourite Donatellos brought together in Florence. And, of course, Faith Ringgold's amazing work at the New Museum. But I think I've got to really be thinking about a work that I haven't seen, that I've no idea what it's going to look like, which is Hugh Locke in the Duveen's gallery. I love what he's done with monuments. I love... I love the way he's messed with it. It's such a theme now. So how is he going to address the neoclassical temple of Tate Britain? And what's he going to do in the Juvenes uh, commission, in the Juvenes galleries? Um, in March, I will find out. I can't wait. Juvindi. St. Paul's Cathedral has
2: a show coming. up. Is it even a show? Can you have a show in a church? I don't know. But they have something coming up called 50 Monuments in 50 Voices. And writers, visual artists and musicians respond to the monuments that they have in their collection. And I'm really, really looking forward to Victor Ehikamena's response. He's an artist that he is from the Benin area of Nigeria. And again, he sort of uses rosaries to interrogate things that were looted from... The Benin Kingdom and are now, as we've mentioned, in the British Museum. And so he just creates these massive figures from Benin mythology, but they are made and Benin history as well. But they're made with rosaries, and so he's sort of like juxtaposing Catholicism, which came with imperial domination, but the images are from his tradition and from his culture and they're great um and also also I know we said one but I'm also (laughs) really looking forward to seeing what um Evelyn Nicodemus does she's an artist that I discovered last year and I think I personally think she's like a Faith Ringgold she's in her 70s now she's from Tanzania she's this amazing feminist who whose work meditates on the female experience and All of that wonderful stuff. And in so many different mediums, in painting, in mixed media. Um, And yeah, she's just got some gallery representation in her 70s. It's like a Cinderella story. So really looking forward to to seeing what Evelyn Nicodemus does this year.
0: Um, And I think I'm going to choose The Red Studio by Matisse, which is the subject of a show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in May, but which is travelling later in the year to Copenhagen in Denmark. And it's all about the Red Studio and the works that are within that painting. It's a picture of Matisse's studio and it's reuniting the Red Studio itself with all those works that he depicted within it. I can't wait. So all I have to do now is just to say a big thank you to Louisa and Chibundu. Thank you both so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: A list of the shows discussed in this conversation will be on our website, go to the podcast tab and click on this episode and you can also read more about the big events of 2022 on the website and the app, plus there are comprehensive listings in our year ahead special in the January print edition of The Art Newspaper. Obviously it's more important than ever to check the dates with the galleries and museums ahead of your visit. Chibundo Anuso's novel Sankofa is published by Virago and priced £16.99 and you can read her monthly column for the art newspaper online or on the app, where you'll also find Louisa Buck's articles, including her blog The Buck Stopped Here. Now, Georgina Adam, one of the art newspaper's editors at large, has for some time begun each year by looking into her crystal ball and predicting what might happen in the art market. Even though her task is all the harder amid the COVID-19 crisis, 2022 is no exception. And Georgina joins me now to tell me what she thinks awaits the art trade in the coming 12 months. Georgina, you've been doing these predictions for some time. It must be getting harder the longer that COVID goes on, though.
3: It's extremely hard. I think anybody, whether they're in the art market or in financial services or or generally, find it extremely difficult to make any predictions at the moment, because we just don't know, will there be a new variant? Omicron came out of the blue, really, and is now rampaging around the world. So uh, the usual provisos. This is what it looks like at the moment. This is what I think at the moment. I might be wrong. I might be right.
0: One of the things that was clear that Omicron affected immediately was fares. And I wanted to begin with fares because they, sort of, they are such a dominant part of the market. We've talked about them a lot over the last couple of years. Now, you've come up with a good idea of, of effectively doing kind of predicted winners and losers for yeah. 2022. We're going to begin by talking about fares because I think this is, this is something which has been very clear that they've lost a lot over the last couple of years. So they, they're, they're in a precarious position. Do you think that will continue?
3: Yes, I think that um, I, I have indeed thought about winners and losers for the coming year, and I'm afraid that fairs look as if they're on the loser side. Um, it, it's very difficult for them. They can't predict what's going to happen. We've already seen a number of fairs uh, postponed in the London Art Fair, which was due to take place, I think, next week. Uh, Brafa, uh Tefaf as well, uh, going forward. I think what's interesting is that is that we'll probably see fairs happen more in the summer months in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, But the trouble is it'll then crowd enormously. And, of course, finding places to have these, not everybody has their own tent the way Freeze does. Finding somewhere to host them is is going to be problematic. And the other problematic element, I think, for fairs is that just people are going to travel less. Travel is a hassle at the moment. You need tests, even if this is being reduced a bit and I think and people are nervous they're nervous of catching of catching Omicron at the moment so I think fairs are not in a good place because they have no revenue coming in at the moment.
0: And, and also obviously the bunching affects the galleries right so obviously if you have that bunching of fares all happening within a very short period inevitably collectors pick and choose more and therefore galleries will suffer is that right?
3: Yes, I think so. I mean, fairs also are going to become because of this travel issue. They've become more domestically focused and probably smaller, and the problem is going to be to keep up the quality as well if you don't have major major galleries attending them and the the major collectors as well. The bunching effect i think no i'm I'm afraid that for fairs, I think it's it's very difficult for them at the moment
0: and will galleries naturally be therefore in the category of losers? because of fairs mainly?
3: I think that galleries also will be affected. Um, I think that you need to separate out the few very, very big galleries that have got international networks. And so they're less dependent on fairs to getting out to to meeting uh, clients and, and also finding artists in countries where they're not established. But I think for the smaller galleries, for the mid-size and smaller, it is the fact that the fairs are weakened is also going to weaken them. Although, of course, they have saved money by not doing fairs, not traveling, not entertaining. But they do need, nevertheless, that oxygen of meeting their collectors and going to other places. The very biggest ones, as I say, I think don't have this problem. But I think for the others, they are also, I'm afraid, Rather put them in the category of losers.
0: We've also seen this trend of galleries developing more collegiate relationships. One in the form of climate change coalition, the other in terms of organising together as a kind of well, it appears to be a response to the monopoly of the big mega galleries. You know that a sense of smaller galleries gathering together to kind of have a sort of strength in unity. Is, is that—is that likely to continue? Is that—is that something which you think has real substance?
3: I don't know. I'm not totally hopeful that that will continue. Of course, galleries gathering together was what happened with fairs. That was the way the smaller galleries gathered together. So they haven't got the fairs to do it. I mean, I would hope that this would continue. And certainly Galleries Climate Coalition is a very good initiative and there are others. But uh, sadly, I just think it's very difficult for galleries to do this because they are mostly individuals operating. And I just don't see how, how they can really achieve an enormous amount of traction.
0: It did seem that the auction houses were big winners and have been almost since the start of the pandemic. Is that is that right?
3: Yes, that's my feeling. My feeling is that they are the winners. Um, for a start, they did already have this big international network, which, as I said before, is, is what a smaller gallery doesn't have. They also have the, the firepower financially to establish themselves quickly into the digital space, uh, particularly Sotheby's, which um, already that the owner Patrick Drahi also already had online techno- technolo- technological uh, expertise. And so they were able to transit quite quickly into this, This first of all, purely online auctions and then into this hybrid formula, which seems to be working for them. They've had an extremely good year. Well, the two big auction houses have had an extremely good year. Philips as well has had a very good, uh, good year. And uh, the pandemic doesn't seem to have discouraged vendors which is so crucial for them they did have two fantastic sales last year which was the Maclow and the Cox collection which did terribly well respectively at Sotheby's and Christie's but that seems to be encouraging vendors who might have held back and we already have had news of a, a major magret that's coming up and of course there's the other botticelli coming up in the old master field so I do think that the auction houses have been winners in this.
0: And obviously, one of the interesting factors about auction houses is where the money is. And it seems that last year there was a lot of money in New York, lots of sales in New York. Is that still the case? Is, not, is New York a sort of dominant place in terms of auction houses at the moment?
3: Yes, I think that that, that it is dominant, but there are some other uh, centres which are emerging and it's actually really interesting to look at what's happening elsewhere. We've got two other centres which seem to be vying for attention. So one is the Paris-London situation. London could be a bit weakened by Brexit in the sense that I have certainly anecdotally heard reports of people saying it's complicated to ship to, to buy in England, to buy at Freeze. That's individuals. I can't give figures for that. Paris does seem to be on the rise, very much so. And there's a very interesting row going on in Paris at the moment about uh, the Grand Palais, which has hosted the FIAC and Paris Photo for decades. And now those two slots have been put out to tender, to the fury of French dealers. And if another international art fair takes its place, it could really damage FIAC. But at the same time, it would be an amazing boost for Paris, which has just opened new fantastic private museums, the Pinot Collection. In 2024, the Fondation Cartier is going to open a vast new private museum, for more traditional tastes, there's also the Altani collection that's on Place de la Concorde. So Paris does look as if it's really doing very well and could finally challenge the preeminence of London, which London has held since the 1950s. The other interesting uh, battle for for dominance is, of course, Asia, and we'll come back perhaps to Asian collectors later. But what's going on between Hong Kong and Seoul is very interesting. Freeze is going to Seoul uh, in a sort of partnership with the Korean uh, International Art Fair, the Kiev. And in fact, a lot of dealers are opening in in Seoul. Ropak's gone there, Goodman's gone there, Perrutan was already there, I think. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Asian buyers are so important and that the auction houses are bolstering their position in Hong Kong. Personally, I think finally Seoul will win out because I think that ultimately the tightening grip of China on Hong Kong will discourage people. Hong Kong might remain as a sort of an entrepôt because there's no tax and things, but I think that there's a huge amount of interest in, in what's going on in Korea and Seoul. And of course, it does have a lot of collectors already in the contemporary field.
0: I mean, one of the things that's clear is that Hong Kong is hemorrhaging artists. Artists are leaving in their droves. It seems like the art world at last has to take note, doesn't it? Because it's one of the notable things is how the art world has pretty much ignored all the increasing restrictions on human rights in Hong Kong.
3: Well, the art world or the art trade, I think the art trade has has ignored it because... It is rather business as usual. And it's not not been so bad for people in the art trade. It's it's worse for people who are lawyers or teachers or people like that who who actually are really having their lives and their professional lives changed. Uh, But uh, when you think that M Plus Museum, there is censorship of works of art, there is not going to be freedom to show everything. I am not hopeful for the future for Hong
0: Kong the rush of NFT emails that we're getting as journalists doesn't seem to have stopped in the new year. Do you, do you predict that the market for NFTs is going to remain as strong?
3: So, no, I don't think so. I don't think that we're going to see the heights that we've seen before. I think it will continue on because they are still bringing in a new demography, a new young cohort of buyers who've got very different tastes and who also are able to buy in at a very low price. This is the GameStop phenomenon, you know, for a few hundred dollars, uh, slightly ignoring the ecological implications of all of this, which perhaps can be solved or cannot be solved. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. So no, I don't think the NFT phenomenon can remain at the level it was at. That being said, I don't think it will disappear immediately in fact, I don't think it'll disappear at all. It, it, you do need to remember that NFT art is only a small part of the NFT boom and that a lot of things like tickets to events and so on are very, very important. And collectibles. There's a, It's difficult to to distinguish between collecting uh, bored apes or, or crypto punks um, and, and art. And a lot of very serious artists are now making NFTs i'm very encouraged by the fact that museums are trying to use nfts in order to to raise money which they desperately need to but ultimately buying an nft of something from the british museum that you can act for about 7 or 800 pounds something that you can actually acquire on a postcard or a poster or an apron uh, doesn't seem to me that that can last because The whole point of NFTs is their resale value for a lot of people. And I just don't see that those price levels can be maintained. So I do think that NFTs will gradually, towards the end of the year, um, slump quite a lot.
0: There are also more mutterings of um, regulation around NFTs. Do you see that happening?
3: I'm not a financial person, so it's difficult for me to tell. But it does seem to me that NFTs are so intimately linked to cryptocurrencies. And there's a lot of talk about regulation of cryptocurrencies. So I think that will have a negative impact on NFTs. There's also a lot to be sorted out in the legal aspect. I was just reading an interesting article about luxury goods are now trying to take to court open sea because of using branded products in the metaverse and this is interesting because of course the argument is that the metaverse isn't the real world and so the the usual copyright rights don't apply all of these things have got to be sorted out
0: Okay. Um one of the things that we saw a lot last year and it does happen from time to time but it seems like the churn is quicker is young artists booming uh, particularly in auction houses. So yes, galleries are controlling their trying to control their markets but in the auction houses their their prices are going through the roof. Do you think this is a sort of an ongoing endless churn or will it be blips and fits and starts?
3: I think it probably will be more in fits and starts. And, of course, there has been wrongdoing. I just read recently that there's some Italians who've been trying to do pump and dump schemes on these young artists. And, of course, as we know, um, the art market is not as regulated as, say, financial markets. So it is easier to, to do this sort of thing. I think what we haven't mentioned so far is the importance of Asian collectors. And Asian collectors are very strong. They've been extremely strong uh, in the last year, but they are very investment-oriented. And I think they have been driving this phenomenon. And the trouble is that when they try to realise their investments, which might come quite quickly, that really could have quite a negative effect on this sort of churn about hot young artists. So we shall see. I think, sadly, it's very bad for artists because when they see a price go 10 times estimate, how can they stay at that level? Those levels are not sustainable, particularly if there's another, even hotter, younger one coming along behind.
0: Indeed. And tell me about the future, therefore, this year, as you see it for, for in terms of the collectors. Do you think that Asian collecting will remain strong? But if it is investment-driven, what are the factors that could affect the strength of that? Uh,
3: well, for a start, I do think that... Um, that there is an overlap with NFTs and cryptocurrencies. So all of that is sort of happening at the same time. And this has driven the market a bit higher. If we do see cryptocurrencies drop, then I think that will also have an impact. And as far as Asian collectors are concerned, I think if they see that their investments are not paying off as well as they thought, then they will not so much. One thing we haven't discussed, and this doesn't only affect Asians, is this looming fear of inflation and this move towards tangible assets. And I think this is one of the things that's very positive about the coming year, uh, is that tangible efforts such as art are going to be desired, particularly in America, because of this feeling that with inflation, your money is going to be devalued. So put it in at least some of it into something solid. So I think that will support the uh, market, but I think that possibly will benefit more the more established, validated artists rather than the very latest, hottest new thing.
0: Well, Georgina, thank you as ever for having a stab at predicting in the most unpredictable of times what's going to happen in 2022.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: You can find all Georgina's articles for the art newspaper on the website or the app. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Michalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentle and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Shubindu, Louisa and Georgina. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now.